We'll just back up a few verses and remind ourselves, uh, beginning in verse 13 here in chapter 18, of what's going on in the flow of the narrative. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, this is God's holy and inspired word. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan and the Rabsaris and the Rabshaka from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. And they called out to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Now uh, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, of God, uh, the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And he has said to Judah and to, to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, and if you are able to ride on uh, if you are able on your part to set riders on them, how then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come out without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakna, Rather, the Rabshaka, uh, speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshaka said to them, Has my master sent me only to your master and to, and to speak uh, to you to speak these words? Are not the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then the Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. 
Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me, and each of and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joe, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. The reading of God's holy word, be seated and let's pray together. Oh Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our eyes, O oh God, that we might behold wonderful things from your holy word by the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 2 Kings 18, verses 1 to 8, testifies that despite the challenging environment in which Hezekiah's faith operated, Assyria's subduing the northern kingdom of Israel and carrying her away into exile, verses 9 to 12 here in chapter 18, and Assyria's coming up against all Judah's fortified cities and seizing them, verse 13, and despite a lapse in Hezekiah's faith, verses 14 to 16, paying the exorbitant tribute, uh, that Assyria's king imposed after Hezekiah initially refused uh, to serve the king of Assyria. Verses 1 through 8, here in chapter 18, testify that on the whole, Judah's king remained steadfast in his faith. Our text this evening reveals that the people of Judah, on the other hand, did not remain steadfast in their faith. The chief deficiency of their faith was that they didn't trust solely in Jehovah to deliver them from their enemies. The serious king not only preyed on Judah's weak faith, but also denied God's power to deliver uh, Judah 
due to uh, his faulty presupposition that Jehovah was no different than any of the gods of the other nations. Verses 13 to, uh, 17 to 37, rather, uh, show us that both believers and unbelievers deny Jehovah's power to save, Jehovah's power to deliver. We'll look at two things uh, this evening. First, faith's failure to trust in Jehovah's power alone to save. Faith's, faith's failure to trust in Jehovah's power alone to save. And then secondly, unbelief's assumption that Jehovah is powerless to save like other gods. First then, faith's failure to trust in Jehovah's power alone to save. As we uh, begin verse 17 here in our text, remember uh, that uh, as we read in the context, uh, Hezekiah had paid tribute to uh, the, the tribute that Shalmaneser specified, verses 14 to 16, but the king of Assyria nevertheless sent representatives to uh, Jerusalem, the Tartan, the, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshaka, uh, from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army against Jerusalem, verse 17. And we wonder... Uh, what these uh, Assyrians are doing here. Why, why are they outside of uh, Judah's capital? Didn't Hezekiah just uh, agree to pay Sennacherib's exorbitant tribute? Uh, wasn't the rationale for uh, paying that uh, tribute that Sennacherib was uh, supposed to withdraw from the military campaign that he had initiated against Judah seizing all her fortified cities, why is he now demanding uh, the surrender of Judah? Well, we're left to surmise that Sennacherib is a, apparently a scoundrel who reneged on his agreement to withdraw from his attack on Judah and, and instead sent his agents uh, and his army to demand Jerusalem's surrender. Tartan, Rebsaris, uh, and Rabshaka are the titles, not the names of the men that the king of Assyria sent. The Tartan was uh, the field marshal or commander next in rank to the king. The Rabsaris was a senior administrative officer, and the Rabshaka was uh, chief cupbearer, another uh, high-ranking official in the Assyrian court. The Rabshaka is the, spoke, the, the spokesman of uh, this group of officials, and he demands that uh, Hezekiah come out, uh, but Hezekiah has sent his cabinet ministers instead, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. And we get the sense that the Rabshaka has made a speech like this before, uh, that it was the Assyrian king's standard operating, uh, uh, op operating pr uh, procedure to uh, send his best orator to demand surrender in order to save him the trouble of expending any resources to lay siege against a city. The first part of the Rabshaka's speech 
is organized around the theme of trust. The Hebrew word to trust or rely in its verbal, verbal or noun form appears seven times in verses 19 to 24. Part of his argument consists of a political ploy in verse 22. If you say to me, we trust in Jehovah our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken, a, has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. This tells us that uh, the king of Assyria had an excellent intelligence network, and that he knew what was going on in Judah. He knew what was going on in Jerusalem. We might think that uh, the Assyrian is, is hurting his case from the get-go, that he doesn't understand that Hezekiah's worship reforms are pleasing to Jehovah. But that's not the point. He doesn't care about religion. He cares about politics. The Rabshakeh apparently knows that not everybody in Judah was happy over the king's reforms. If his speech can stir up angst in some of those who love the high places, it could only help his case. He wants to stoke the embers of Judah's bitterness over the king's reforms. The Rabshakeh also engages in mockery. Verse 23, he offers Jerusalem a deal. Assyria will give them 2,000 horses, but he's willing to bet that Judah can't supply qualified riders for them. Judah, he says in verse 24, is no match for even the lowliest of Assyria's officials. And then he claims to have received special revelation from Jehovah, verse 25. The very one whom Judah trusts commanded him to attack Judah and destroy it, the king's spokesman says. Assyria, he claims, is only obeying Jehovah's will. But the saddest point of the Rabshakeh's argument comes in his expose of Judah's trust in Egypt, verse 21. Now, there's no evidence that Hezekiah supported an alliance with Egypt, at least not biblical evidence, but it appears that there was a strong pro-Egyptian element in Judah and perhaps even in King Hezekiah's court. Isaiah, in chapters 30 and 31 of his prophecy, blasted the Egyptian alliance as useless and stupid and idolatrous. The irony here is that the Rabshakeh knows that Judah has more faith in Egypt than in Jehovah, and that it was useless and stupid. It's sad when an Assyrian has to teach you how flimsy and fragile your trust in God is. It's sad when an Assyrian can discern that you trust more in Egypt than in Jehovah. It's sad when an Assyrian can expose the chief deficiency of your faith. 
Fast forward about 244 years, about 457 B.C., and we find Ezra, the priest, concerned about even the appearance of this deficiency of faith, even the appearance, uh, the appearance rather, that, that uh, God's people coming out of exile, as Ezra led uh, this new generation of exiles back to Jerusalem, he was concerned that there might be on his part, uh, as he was interacting with uh, King Artaxerxes, uh, that there might be a deficiency in his trust in Jehovah, that somehow he might trust, yes, in Jehovah, but also in King Artaxerxes as well to uh, uh, deliver them on their way from Persia to Jerusalem. So we read in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, Then I, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him for a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Not even a smittering of this chief deficiency of faith in Ezra that we find in the people of Judah who did not trust solely in Jehovah to deliver them, to save them from their enemies. And the Church of Jesus Christ today isn't immune to this deficiency, this trap of trusting in Egypt. Too often our activity becomes a substitute for our faith instead of an expression of our faith. It's easy to think that we can be effective in gospel ministry because we have resources and we have programs and we have name recognition. We have conferences. God's people need to be reminded that, chafes, uh, that faith's chief deficiency is a failure to trust in faith's chief object in God himself. Uh, the chronicler's account reveals that it was Hezekiah who reminded Judah of this at this particular time uh, in their history when uh, the king of Assyria had come up to make war against them in 2 Chronicles 32, 1-8. It's not that Hezekiah was idle when he saw that Sennacherib came up to Jerusalem to 
uh, make war. He got busy making preparations. He stopped up the spring so that the Assyrians wouldn't have uh, fresh water, verses 3 and 4. He rebuilt the wall that had been broken down. Uh, He mass-produced weapons and shields. Uh, He appointed military officers over uh, all of the people. But most importantly, he encouraged the people to trust in Jehovah and Jehovah alone. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 here in 2 Chronicles 32. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one who is with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. If faith's chief deficiency is thinking that Jehovah needs Egypt's help to deliver unbelief's error is its presupposition is that Jehovah is no different than any of the gods of the nations. That brings us secondly then to unbelief's assumption that Jehovah is powerless to save like other gods. Verses 26 to 37. Hezekiah's officers appeal, verse 26, to the Rabshaka, urging him to speak in Aramaic, which they understood, rather than Judean, that is Hebrew, so as not to alarm the people of Judah. He refused on, uh, uh, the Rabshaka refused on the basis that his primary audience was precisely those who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you, he says. Those last two words are telling. Even the upper echelon, even Hezekiah's officials, he contends, will, uh, won't escape the horrors of Jerusalem's siege. The Rabshakeh's speech is calculated to drive a wedge between the people of Judah and Hezekiah and to exalt the king of Assyria. Four times, verses 19, 28, 30, and 31, he calls Sennacherib king of Assyria, and in two of these instances, he he adds the adjective great. He never calls Hezekiah king attempting instead to devalue him simply by calling him Hezekiah. He never calls, uh, uh, he, he, uh, four times he, he simply, uh, or he seeks to undermine uh, the people's confidence in Hezekiah's leadership. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, verse 29. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in Jehovah, verse 30. Don't listen to Hezekiah, verse 31. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For he misleads you, verse 32. He wants them instead to trust the king of Assyria, verse 31, who offers them prosperity and plenty. Thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern. Verse 32. 
And then in verse 32, he glosses over the miseries of deportation and presents Assyria as a mirror image of Judah's own land, the promised land, using the same language uh, that Jehovah had used uh, to describe uh, this to the people of Israel through Moses. So in the second part of his speech, the Rabshaka has uh, tried to create division between Judah and her king and win them over to the king of Assyria. But the clincher of his argument is logic. The key verb in this section is deliver. Forms of the verb appear nine times in the Hebrew. Verses 29, 30, 32, 33, 34, and 35. And it's the key word in the Rabshaka's conclusion in verses 33 to 35. What's more, it's a telling argument. It can claim history as its witness. The Rabshaka names half a dozen locations conquered by Assyria. In verse 34, most of them probably in uh, Aram or Syria, but also Samaria, where Judah's brethren have already uh, been carried off into captivity. And then the king of Assyria's spokesman, his best order says something stupid, something that betrays a defect in his logic. Verse 35, he assumes that Jehovah is no different than the gods of the nations, that Jehovah's power is no match for a world-class power like Assyria. The Assyrian gods had triumphed over these lesser gods and Jehovah, the Rabshaka claims, will meet the same fate. And that was a fatal mistake. He stepped over a line that no one ought to cross. And we'll see that, how that boast fared in uh, chapter 19. After all of this, uh, the conclusion is rather downbeat. Now, granted, Hezekiah had told them not to answer uh, this Assyrian king's representative a word, not to say a word to him. But nevertheless, they tear their robes, the traditional sign of mourning, uh, and they walk away uh, to report to the king of Assyria, uh, rather to King Hezekiah, to report the words of uh, the Rabshaka to him. They don't know how the events of chapter 19 will unfold. Uh, they don't know what the reader of 2 Kings 19 knows. The affairs of uh, Jehovah's people looked bleak uh, at that moment with uh, uh, the Assyrian army standing uh, outside of Jerusalem's walls, threatening to attack, and things in this world seem just as bleak sometimes for God's people. 
the need for faith, the need for this soul trust in Jehovah is just as necessary today as it was in the year 701 B.C. The twin themes that run through this account are trust and deliverance, trust and salvation, and they run through the whole Bible. The great theme of Exodus, it's the great theme of the Gospels, trust and deliverance. And the Gospel claims exclusivity for Jehovah, Israel's God, and for his Messiah, Jesus Christ. The true God and the true God alone can save. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Faith is the alone instrument of your salvation, but your faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Faith is merely the means uh, that brings you into union with your Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith alone, in Christ alone, can save a guilty sinner. There aren't many roads uh, that lead to heaven, but one road. The false religions with their false gods can't save anyone. And that's where the Christian must stand. That's what the Christian must believe. No matter how the world's mind is changing about this, no matter how the church's mind is is changing in, in this regard, being more embracive in its understanding of salvation, we must stand firm in this truth, even when the church is prone to deny it because it's a denial of God's sovereignty in salvation. You must trust in God's power to save you from sin's guilt through justification and to deliver you from sin's power through sanctification. You must trust in God's power to to deliver his church from her enemies and her oppressors through the darkest of times in redemptive history. You must learn to pray and plead God's promises out of the vast riches of uh, this knowledge in the faith given to us in the scriptures. And when your faith falters, You must be ready to say with the epileptic boy's father, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And when your faith grows weak, you must be ready to say with Christ's disciples, Lord Jesus, increase my faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we look to you and to you alone as our God We look to you as the one who alone can save us and to you, Christ alone, to whom we look for our salvation. 
We confess, O God, we believe that there is no other God, there is no other way to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, uh, that you would grant faith to your people. We pray that we, uh, that this chief deficiency of faith might not plague your church and might not plague us as Christians to trust in something else, to rely on some other help, the arm of the flesh, our own strength, uh, even sometimes, O oh Lord, our, uh, those who are nearest and dearest to us, our, our loved ones, our family members, looking to them for our hope, looking to them for our help instead of trusting in you and you alone to deliver us, uh, to save us, to look, look into you as the chief object of our faith, uh, confessing that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, that your power is strong to save. Oh God, we read of these twin themes of trust and deliverance, and we know that it's incumbent upon us to trust in you and you only to deliver us, to save us, to save us from our sins and our justification, and to save us when our sins continue to beset us in the Christian experience. When we, uh, when we can't seem to shake loose our darling sins, the sins uh, that we so often commit before you. We pray uh, that we would trust, O oh Lord, in your deliverance, that we would trust in your salvation. Give us this trust. Lord, we do believe. Help us in our unbelief. Our faith is weak. Lord Jesus, increase our faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.